Welcome to today's Sant Mat Satsang podcast edition of Spiritual Awakening Radio. My name is James Bean. Today I focus on the Marar Declaration, the historic SpearCon 2010 interfaith Radhaswami event that took place, this historic event that took place in Agra, India. My guest is Professor Mark Jürgen Smyer, author of a very wonderful book called Radhaswami Reality. We talk about the history of Sant Mat, the origins of this path, and especially about this gathering that took place back in 2010, this interfaith gathering. It's tempting to say a kind of Vatican II for Sant Mot. It's not quite a Vatican II for Sant Mot, but I'm tempted to say that because it was really an amazing historic development. This interview hasn't circulated too far and wide. Some followers of Dial Bog shared copies, MP3s of this interview and may remember me from a few years back when this interview first aired. But for the most part, many have not heard this program before, so I thought I would share it for the first time today. I dug deep into my archives, into my hard drive, and decided to just share this interview with this worldwide audience interested in satsang, in Sant Mat, in Radhaswami, in the meditation practice of inner light and sound, to share it with everyone here today. Before I get to the Mark Jurgensmeyer interview, a little bit of background. First of all, a good word for academic books like Radhaswami Reality. When approaching a spiritual path, it's good to have objective publications from a non-sectarian point of view to learn more, to get some background on a path. I have done with Sant Mat the same thing I did with Ekankar and Christianity to poke around, to ask questions, to trace things back. Who was the master of the master? Who was his master? Who was that person's master? What are the primary spiritual texts? Where did these texts come from? Where does this path come from? It's good to get familiar with the path. And academic books written by people who aren't necessarily affiliated with any particular branch of it, can provide vital information, alert you to any problems or ethical situations or red flags. They can also let you know about some wonderful books you should get. It's good to get those academic-type books, like Radhaswami Reality by Professor Mark Jurgensmeyer, David Lane's book, The Making of a Spiritual Movement, David Lorenzen's In Praise of a Formless God, Daniel Gold's Lord as Guru, so many of those wonderful academic books. There's a great textbook with several contributors. Several scholars have contributed to a book called The Sants. That's an amazing book all about the history of the Sants of India, with chapters also exploring Sufism, and there's a Radhaswami section and sections devoted to the tradition of Kabir, it's absolutely priceless to have some academic books to call upon 
to get some honest answers, some objective information from non-sectarian points of view. A bit about the Marar Declaration that became the basis for this 2010 event that took place at Dial Bagh University in Agra. Remembering the Marar Declaration and the Interfaith SpearCon 2010 historic event. The letter of invitation was sent to the revered leaders of seven centers and also the draft of proposed declaration or the Marar Declaration on the lines of the one adopted by Dial Bagh at Marar was sent for consideration. Revered Baba Kehar Singh Ji Maharaj of Tarn Taran and revered Kanwar Singh Sahib of Dinod participated in the conclave. The revered leaders of Bayas and Sawan Kirpal Ruhani Mission, Delhi, were going to be out of the country or out of India on the dates set for the conclave. Revered Baba Gurinder Singh Ji Maharaj of Bayas promised to visit Dial Bagh before the end of the celebrations and did come on the 16th of March 2011. And I'm just skimming through this document I have. Sawan Kripal Ruhani Mission conveyed full support for the Marar Declaration revered Agam Prasad Mathur Sahib of Pipal Monday, participated in the SpearCon seminar as chief guest of honor and has indicated his support for the declaration, referring once again to the Murar Declaration. Mahantji of the Tulsi Moth of Hathras, or the Sant Tulsi Sahib Mandir, or ashram based in Hathras, attended SpearCon throughout also, the Dr. Hazra group affiliated with Swami Bhag attended SpearCon 2010. The Marar Declaration, the basis of fellowship, the framework of this gathering. The following is the text of the declaration which was signed by revered Dr. P.S. Satsangi Sahib, revered Baba Kihar Singh Sahib, and revered Kanwar Singh Ji of the Dinod Radhaswami Satsang. Radhaswami Dayal incarnated himself in the year 1818 in the form of Swamiji Maharaj in this world for the redemption of souls or jivas. In 1861 he declared open his Satsang to the public in general which was an event of unparalleled mercy by his grace, Satsang has been making steady progress ever since. The Nijdar has continued to function in different human forms continuously. We have the assurance that the Nijdar will not return until it has completed its task of the redemption of all jivas or souls. Point number two. In due course of time, several centers of the Radhaswami Satsang have got established. It is with the strength of Nijdar that the Sansat gurus of different centers are maintaining progress of their respective communities. Three, we are all pilgrims 
treading the same path and desirous of reaching the same destination ultimately. Satsang movement has been started to spread the true religion and peace and tranquility in the world and to draw people towards the holy feet of Hazur Radhaswami Dayal. This object can be better served by maintaining mutual affection and brotherly relations among the different centers of the Radhaswami faith and working in cooperation to attain the common goal as the objective of worship of everyone is the same, i.e. merciful Radhaswami, and the original home of everyone is the same, i.e. the abode of Radhaswami. And the real teachers of everyone are the same, Bani and discourses of merciful Radhaswami. So obviously then, all should have brotherly relations and heartfelt love and affection for one another. That particular point was also a quote, actually a quote, that paragraph is by Hazur Maharaj Vaisalagram Bahadur from the book Prem Patra Radhaswami. Point number four, as Satsang completes 150 years, it is the right time to take an initiative in this direction. We recognize all those belonging to the larger Radhaswami community who satisfy the following criteria. All recognize Param Parush Swamiji Maharaj as avatar of Radhaswami Dayal. B. Accept Radhaswami Nam as the true Nij Nam. And C. The practice of Surit Shad Yoga under the guidance of a living Sansat Guru as the way for attaining liberation. In order to strengthen the satsang movement for attainment of its goal, we make the following declaration. 1. That all satsang centers and the satsangis affiliated with them would maintain and promote brotherly relations and affectionate behavior towards the followers of the Radhaswami faith attached to different centers. 2. Each center will continue to make separate arrangements for satsang as it deems proper. It will be open to a satsangi to join any center according to his or her inclination and to follow the lead of the Sat guru whose guidance he or she wants. 3. Each center will be free to manage its properties according to its wishes, but access to the shrines under the management or under their management will be provided to the followers of the faith attached to the different centers. 4. No satsangi by any written word or utterance will make any statements which may be derogatory to other satsangs or try to instill his or her ideas and feelings in the minds of others. We enjoin upon satsangis attached to the various centers to follow this declaration in, lent, in letter and in spirit. So that's the essence of the Marah Declaration. And just a note for those in the West, for the benefit of some in the West, it should also be said, uh, Surat Shab Yoga in all of the above-mentioned spiritual communities is taught to students at no cost. There is no charge, no money involved whatsoever in order to learn the practice. There are no membership fees or payments required for membership dues or monthly discourses. In order to qualify to learn the inner light and sound meditation practice known as Surat Shab Yoga, one simply needs to be willing to learn from a living master, adhere to the lacto-vegetarian diet, 
and the other basic, universally recognized ahimsa principles taught in all of the above Sant Mat communities. My guest today is Professor Mark Jurgensmeyer, author of the book Radhaswami Reality. During this conversation today, you'll hear all sorts of fascinating things about the history of this path. We explore the spirit of Sant Mat ecumenism and dialogue of the 2010 historic SpearCon conference. Also, some Sant Mat history speculation on the origins of the Radhaswami faith, the ashram of Tulsi Sahib, the Tulsi Sahib group in Hathras, the people of the Anurag Sagar, or what Mark Jurgensmeyer calls esoteric Santism. Esoteric Santism refers to the specific brand or type of Santmat that we find present in the teachings of Tulsi Sahib, the Radhaswami faith, and contemporary Santmat. And we explore the question as to who was teaching this esoteric Santmat prior to the time of Sant Tulsi Sahib of Hathras. And we trace it back in time. We talk about Sant Darya Sahib and the Dharam Dasi line of masters in the Kabir branch of Sant Mat. Mark Jurgensmeyer is director at a center of global and international studies. He's a professor of sociology and affiliate professor of religious studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He is an expert on religious violence, conflict re- resolution, and South Asian religion and politics, and has published more than 200 articles and 20 books, including Radhaswami Reality, The Logic of a Modern Faith, published by Princeton University Press. Also, other projects include Songs of the Saints of India, Mystic Poetry of Kabir, Guru Nanak, Ravidas, Mirabai, Surdas, and Tulsi Das. That's from Oxford University Press. Contributed chapters to the Sants, Studies in a Devotional Tradition of India, a book published in India by Mortalal Banarsadas, Books of Delhi. We discuss the SpearCon 2010 International Seminar on the Religion of Sants and the Radhaswami Faith, Spiritual Consciousness Studies, which was held at Dayal Bagh University, associated with the Dayal Bagh branch of the Radhaswami Faith, and we discuss other branches of Sant Mat which participated in that wonderful historic event. A kind of Vatican II of uh, Sant Mat, a most unusual event. Welcome to Spiritual Awakening Radio and my interview with Professor Mark Jurgensmeyer, author of the book Radhaswami Reality. Jurgensmeyer, author of the book Radhaswami Reality, contributor to the book also known as The Sants, on the Sant tradition of India. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. You recently attended the SpearCon conference in, uh, is it, was it held in Agra? 
He was held at the Dialbog branch of uh, uh, Radhaswamy at the Dialbog Educational Institute. So right. technically, it was an academic conference sponsored by the university. Oh, I see. Yeah, well, it sounded like a fascinating historic event. And uh, recently I was reading a declaration that the Dialbog group made um, during the summer of 2010 suggesting um sort of a a framework for for uh, dialoguing with other branches of the Radhaswami faith so i'm most intrigued to find out about this conference and who attended and what was said <laughs> uh yeah that occurred the day after um my presentation and really following the formal conference but there was a meeting of of four spiritual masters in the Radhaswami tradition and I think probably the first time something like this has happened since the council. There was an earlier attempt. <clears throat> oh, gee, when was it? 1930s or 40s? Right, the 20s or 30s. Yeah, um, to try to have some sort of coordination among the the groups that that never quite took off. Um, but uh, in, in this case, there were. Four representatives. Who were the uh, uh, the branches represented? Or the... well, there was you know the People Monday branch, uh, Agamatar Matur, um, uh, Prasad Matur, um, and uh, that's at you know Rai Sedagaram's uh, um, home, and he's in that lineage. Uh, there was the Taran uh master, who's uh, uh, kind of split off from the Bias branch of Radhaswami. And then a new branch that has developed in the last, oh, 20 years, uh, also in the Punjab. So these were not major branches, but I'm told that um, there was a, um, um, a messages of support uh, and agreement on the general principles, both from Bias and from Kirpal Ashram in, uh, in Delhi. And those, of course, are the other two major branches of so, the Radhaswami tradition. So those two, those latter, did not attend, but... They were traveling internationally. Yeah, but they did send the uh, some kind of communication to us uh, yeah, about Yeah, they said this. the regrets that they couldn't make it. Uh, they did support the general uh, gist of the agreement. There were a number of uh, points on which they agreed in that, uh, that brief meeting, and I guess these were circulated in advance. And primarily, the points of agreement were to respect each other, uh, to regard them, uh, their followers as fellow, um, you know, satsangis, uh, to not try to compete for um, the loyalty of the followers, uh, to um, respect the traditional sites, and to make any site of historical uh, um, any site of historical value available to all satsangis in any branch of the tradition now that last point may have been one of the major issues uh, because as you know across the street from Dialbog there's another Radhaswami community Swami Bog right. uh, and that is in fact the original location of the Sadhu camp uh, where um, Swami uh, Shiv Dayal Singh uh, gave his, you know, his sermons, and that's also the location of the Samad or the, or the tomb of of Swami Shivdayal, and it's on that location that uh, 
enormous edifice is being constructed, a marble. It looks kind of like a cathedral with minarets, and it's about half completed, but it's a very slow, painstaking process. And you didn't mention uh, Swami Bhag as being one of those in attendance. Interesting, isn't it? Right. Because they do have uh, uh, some some factions, I guess, that, that are affiliated with living teachers and could make that criteria, that list of uh, the, uh, criteria mentioned in the declaration, um, you know, reverence for Swamiji Maharaj um, and the, the use of uh, the, the name, the sacred name Radha Swami and the practice of Surat Shabd Yoga. And so they they would make that list. Yeah, that's true. Um, but of course, not everybody in Swami Bhag recognizes that that there is there are you know living masters among their presence. And right. officially, the stance of the of the group is that there is an interregnum uh, in the spiritual line. Uh, although one of the people that I interviewed, Ameshwari, um was adamant that there could be a hidden master, and of course. Uh, with some of his own followers who declared after his death that he, in fact, uh, was giving initiation and serving as a master to some people in a very kind of um, private way. And his son also serves in that capacity. So I understand. Right. Interesting that uh, Baba Kehar Singh of the Tantaran group was there. Yes. Mm-hmm. I enjoy his writings. He has quite a few books in English, so I get to check his uh, teachings out. I see. Uh, there's been a, con- a close relationship between Bias and the Tarantarn branch. Right. And from time to time, the masters of Tarantarn have, have sat in the dais in Bias, and so they there already is a kind of uh, kindred relationship there. So it sounds like this conference and the declaration um, is uh, perhaps uh, a continuing effort, perhaps with uh, future plans to continue dialoguing between the different branches of Radha Swami? That's certainly the sentiment of the of the current master, um, uh, Professor Pia Satsangi, who is now the uh, master at Dialbog, uh, who's um, a very gracious person and a very, um, I think, generous person and would like very much to, you know, for the branches of the Radha Swami tradition to at least have a collaborative relationship. Right. Yeah, and they have some wonderful translations. Uh, the Dial Bog group has some great English translations of Prempatra Radhaswami, the Sarbachan, and other mm-hmm. writings. Very well done translations. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. Uh, they, they early on, um, Dial Bog was kind of the leader in English translations, and then of course Bias has become a major a source of English translations as says the Gripal Ashram. The Dialbog Educational Institute is really quite an interesting thing. Um, that was it, it is a separate individual university that is it's not um, purely for Sasangis. It's uh, and it's you know a, a general education university and it's in fact a deemed university, deemed in India's um, educational parlance means it has a special um, appointment from the from the federal government. It's not under any state university. Uh, in the Indian university system, most 
colleges, uh, which that is teach undergraduates, are under a single university. Like Delhi University has, oh, I don't know, 30, 40 different colleges that are under it, and, you know, maybe 100,000 students, I don't know how many are are total, but they're all in their separate colleges, and they and the syllabuses are all set by a central university. In other states, if there are more than one university, there is some sort of um, head university relationship, but the federal government can anoint some universities to be deemed universities which set their own curriculum, and um, this was the case with uh, Dialbog. They were able to, uh, this is early on in when the 1940s, I guess, it was established to, uh, to create it as a separate a federally um, appointed university, which is really quite a distinction. But it means that they can set their own curriculum, and they've set a, a very interesting, very humanistic curriculum uh, on culture and comparative religion, you know, which they require all students to take, but also very heavy emphasis on the sciences. And recently they've gone very much into modern computer technology, and they're at the forefront of Indian universities doing work in computer science, which is very interesting. Yeah, I hear good good things about this uh, colony, the Dialbog, or community, kind of a gigantic intentional community. It is, but uh, if you're if you've gone to Bias, and especially if you've gone to Bias recently, which has really become kind of a mega city. <coughs> well, maybe megatown would be more correct. I mean, it's it, but it's huge. Uh, and then you go to Dialbog, it's really, you think, oh, wow, this is really a totally different experience. It's a sleepy um, kind of colonial building-looking alternative. Uh, but that's deliberately kept that way. Uh, the big, um, you know, the big events, which uh, the Bandaras, which at Bias will attract, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, and they have the facilities to deal with all those people, pets for them to sleep, and enormous longers for free food for everybody. At Dialbog, yeah, they have four or five of these a year, but the satsangis are allowed to only come to one. Uh, so they very carefully try to regulate the size of the crowds, and then even then uh, limit the numbers. Uh, so that the uh, that the place is not overwhelmed. So they their approach is somewhat different than Bias in terms of uh, dealing with the numbers of Sasangis and also the kind of impact on the, on the central institution or central location. Have you been to Dialbog? Ah, uh, no, I haven't. No, no, I have not. It's worth a it's worth a stop. I mean. When you go to India, you have to go to Agra to see the Taj Mahal, right? So uh, you certainly should go just up the road uh, to see the the, the two historic uh, locations, um, Swami Bhag and Dial Bhag on either side. And while you're there, you could go uh, and see the um, you know People Monday, uh, the old um, the old um, location of uh, uh, Rai Salagam. Right, again, uh, Prashad Mathur. Where he is the, uh, currently the master, yeah. I wanted to ask you about some uh, questions regarding ancient history or early history of sure. Radhaswami faith. And, uh, and, of course, that's one of the things I was interested in doing in my book because nobody ever, had ever tried to do that, try to trace the origins of the ideas and the earlier precursors of the uh, Swami Shiv Dial thing. 
Yeah, in your book, Radhaswami Reality, you mention a trip to Hathras, to the Samad of Paramsant Tulsi Sahib, and <coughs> meeting a a Mahant there. Let's see his name. I've got it on my computer here. Well, you you probably have it closer in the tip of your tongue than I do. Sant Prakash Das. Uh, sounds right. Yeah. And he's in this lineage of Sir Swami and Rama Krishna and some others that are apparently uh, in a living lineage of teachers and a satsang of sat of uh, Tulsi Sabis, I guess would be the name, or Tulsi Panth, Tulsi Sahib branch of Santmat right. in Hathras. And so apparently they're still there. I, I, yeah, not I, to be confused with the great Tulsi, who is the supposedly author of the Ramayana and uh, so this is the Tulsi Saab of Hatras, which is a, a local lineage in this particular town, not too far from Agra. Right, Tulsi Sahib as opposed to Tulsi Das. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, you uh, met <coughs> this um, individual, and they they have a group there. I've been waiting for, for them to put up a website, but they are one of the few groups related to the Sant tradition that uh, I have not found a website for. At this point, but I, I believe they're there, or someone is there, and and apparently you met uh, a Mahant and some followers there in Hathras. Yes, and I haven't been back since, so I have no idea what the current state of the of the of the movement is. But in you know India's traditions, uh, once you've established an ashram, these these uh, institutions usually live on, uh, and the big issue is not their survival, but rather who is the anointed a proper person to be the successor when a previous master passes on. And apparently um, when you were there in the late 70s, or I guess it was around 79 or 80 in that period, uh, they apparently had a a group there, and I don't know if you have any recollections of what it was like to be there or any any impressions. <coughs> Um, yeah, no, I remember distinctly. It was uh, uh, fairly small and fairly um, modest uh, uh, ashram. By ashram, I mean a place, a meeting place for satsang and and residences for um, devotees or sadhus or people who are just in camp for a while for um, you know to receive. The spiritual benefit of the presence and the teachings, or uh, but it was not a huge operation, and there was no. not, you know, it was how to describe it, it, you know, like the size of a large house, and it was more, you know, our, our compound with a central courtyard and then um, several rooms and sort of adjacent buildings around it. <clears throat> ah, so not a large group, not a big, uh, no, no, not um, a big group, no, really quite a modest. Uh, ashram. That would explain why they don't have a web presence or weren't the first to go uh, internet if it's right. a smaller group. This may shock you, but not everybody in the world is uh, quite as computer savvy as you and I, maybe. Ah. <laughs> well, India has come a long way in the well, last India few years. <laughs> amazing. I remember when I was first living and traveling in India when, uh, you know, to make a telephone call was just a horrendous experience. You know, you could more easily call the United States than you could call. You know, from one town to another in India, you'd have to place your call. You'd have to go to the post office, which had a room for making uh, telephone calls, and then you'd have to book your call in advance. And then they would arrange the call and get the party on the other side, and then they would call you back. You'd be sitting there the whole time waiting. Right. And 
finally to make your connection. Today, everybody has cell phones. Right. Everybody in India has. They're ridiculously cheap. Everybody has them. Everybody uses them. You see rickshaw wallers, you know, driving along on their rickshaw with with their cell phone in their left hand. It's just amazing. They have leaped forward. <laughs> uh, well, if that's forward, uh, but they've certainly leaped. Indeed. And I also wanted to ask you about your research uh, that very much pertains to the origins or the connection between earlier Sant traditions and Radha Swami. Um, you've had some interesting reflections about the book known as the Anurag Sagar and the Dharam Dasi Kabir Ponce group. Right. And I guess you visited um, with the Dharam Dasis and uh, see in them a, a connection, perhaps, a similarity between them and the Radha Swami faith. Well, this is all speculation, of course, and and, and um, I, I don't dispute the kind of singular importance of Swami Shivdayal and his teachings. Um, but there are echoes, there are resonances uh, in, in earlier traditions, and so as a scholar, my curiosity is to try to. Uh, you know, put those connections together and see if there might be some earlier lineages or traditions from which um, that have a connection to to the ideas and the teachings and the kind of movement, in fact, that the Swami Shivdayal uh, was able to develop and has, which has emerged into the Radha Swami faith. Um, and the best I was be I was able to connect it through, you know, the the books that were important at Hatras and. Uh, the importance of the Anurag Sagar, as you mentioned, <coughs> were to the Dharam Dasis, which is a movement, really, in some ways, that if, if you go there, you think, oh, this is kind of a funny branch of Radhaswami. A little funny in that that they're more uh, kind of uh, iconic Hindu um, representations there, um, more of an emphasis on sadhus, um, but but a lot of the teachings and the style of, uh, you know, satsang and so forth is really quite similar. And the Dharamdasis are, in turn, um, a kind of branch of Kabir Pant. And I think I describe it as esoteric uh, Kabir Pantis because uh, although they follow the teachings of Kabir, now Kabir is this um, medieval teacher or guru or saint or Sant in the Indian tradition, who is venerated by both Hindus and Muslims, and he's the, the name Kabir is is Muslim, of course. Right, one of the ninety nine names of God in Islam. Exactly, but it said he was a convert or someone who venerated both Hinduism and uh, Islam, and of course the common folk story in India is that on his after his death. The Hindus and Muslims fought over his body as to who would get it, whether it would be cremated as a Hindu or whether it be buried as a Muslim. And, of course, a miracle occurred on the spot. Poof, his body turned into a huge pile of flowers, uh, and there were enough for both so that the Hindus could take their batch of flowers off and cremate it, and the Muslims could take their batch of flowers off and bury it as a Muslim. But it's it, Kabir is often, um, I, I won't hold to the veracity of that story, but that's the story that's told. But it does show that uh, he's in the Indian imagination, somebody who is kind of crosses over the two, those two great uh, religious traditions. 
and in death uh, connect. Mm-hmm. There's a in death that story illustrates what he was in life, someone yeah. who reconciled Hindus and Muslims, and was someplace between those two. Some way between those two, but he was not a reconciling person. If you read his poetry, it is a serpic, it's biting. He has no use for pretense, he religious pretense. He has no use for priests and all of the high highfalutin stuff of religion. He says you just have to get right with God. Unless you have God in your heart, unless he's inside, he's nowhere and he's just he's just ruthless and making fun of spiritual pomposity. So I mean he's great to read. It's uh you know he's uh, challenging, he has these short punchy uh you know poems with a kind of twist at the end. Um the, I have uh, Jack Hawley and I have translated a whole uh, uh, a lot of the sant uh, poetry including Kabir in our book Song of the Saints of India, Song of the Saints of India. <coughs> and we had great fun with Kabir because he really is um I had a modern poet in the sense that he's, you know, honest, direct, forthright. So it's interesting that at least some branch of the followers have have seen a, a kind of mystic Kabir, and that they imagine there's a kind of Kabir force uh, that it lives on a different plane, and then can be contacted only through kind of sound connections, and then comes back. Uh, and to earth in, in the form of living masters and you can see in that idea already uh, some of the uh, ideas that are part of the Radhaswami tradition. Yeah, and the Dharam Das uh, group and as well as Darya Sahib of Bihar uh-huh. uh, Darya seems to be in that Kabir, Anurag Sagar tradition or esoteric Santism as you call it Right, and then there's the influence of not yogis, which are a very interesting group, and they're kind of a shadow figure behind a lot of things. And the very fact that some uh, teachers are very adamantly opposed to the not yogis, then Sikhism, for example, they're very hostile to the not yogis. But the very fact that they express that kind of, I don't know, uh, hostility shows that they are aware of them and that they had an influence on them, and you can see some of those influences in Sikhism and arguably also in um, in the Radhaswami tradition and other modern traditions of India. Yeah, it is true that some of the terminology, um, including the word shabd, I believe, was uh, used by the not-yogis. Right. And then there's, of course, the Buddhist connection. Because when you go to Goraknath in, uh, in India, which is kind of the headquarters of the not-yogis, it you see, you know, figures of the uh, you know, founding um, uh, um, figures in the not yogi tradition and the kind of veneration that immediately strike you as being terribly Buddhist. <coughs> and there is a kind of Buddhist sensibility of uh, the unknowing God or the God beyond God and uh, and the kind of quest within, uh, which really distinguished heterodox Buddhism from orthodox Hinduism, you know, over 2,000 years ago. And the common sense idea is that Buddhism died out in India and then went to other parts of Asia. But somehow that never made sense to me that ideas and teachings would die out. I think it's probably more likely that they were simply absorbed and re 
directed and continued in other traditions and maybe the not yogi tradition and to some extent modern traditions like Radhaswami help to embody some of those original Buddhist sensibilities. It is true that uh, sant such as uh, Nam Dev uh, use the term nirvana or nirvan pod to refer to that formless state, and one does think of Buddhism when you talk about that formless, nameless state. Right. Mm-hmm. But all this is speculation. I mean, I'm not, you know, it's, that's the fun of of historical scholarship. It's, you're just trying to put connections together, and you can't, you're never quite certain that you know uh, how it all worked out, but it is intriguing, and it's interesting to, to speculate about. Same with uh, Tulsi Sahib. It, it is. Uh, it's only the internal evidence of the writings that supply clues. Like, for instance, Tulsi Sahib said he had a guru, but uh, the guru is not named in any of the writings that have survived. And but the fact that he used the Anurag Sagar, which is a Dharam Dasi holy book not used by other Kabir Pants mm-hmm. could lead one to think that he must have hung out with them or that there's a connection somehow between Tulsi Sahib and the Dharam Dasis. Certainly possible. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like um, if uh, if there's this, there's this Christian sect and they're not Mormon but they use the Book of Mormon right. and only Mormons use the Book of Mormon, or that's where it came from, Right. then you must imagine there's some connection mm-hmm. there between this group and the Mormons. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and sometimes it's an indirect connection, and um, sometimes, you know, there may be other influences also of which we're not aware, um, but, uh, but still it's intriguing to speculate about these connections. Yeah, my theory is that Tulsi Sahib's guru was someone in the the panth of uh, Darya Sahib, one of several possible successors of Darya Sahib, and uh, that group also reveres the Anurag Sagar. And so uh, it seems that Darya Sahib and Tulsi were the closest. They were sort of soulmates. Right, and so it's possible. Yeah, it'd be interesting. The question is, how would you find out? Uh, you know, I, as I said, I've been to Hatras and I've talked with people, and uh, my Hindi isn't perfect, but uh, it, at least it's functional. And I, I go with people who can uh, help me with my Hindi, um, who are setting themselves Indian. But you know, the modern day people at these ashrams don't necessarily have the history, certainly not in their head, and and they um, so often they don't know, or they don't want to speculate, or they come up with connections that you think are really implausible. So um, trying to trace this information down is not it is not easy. It's not easy, even even like a generation or so after a That's guru right. in question. That's it's, right. It's sure. totally lost. The history is lost practically. Sure, it's just lost or reshaped or are re-remembered in in ways that they're more convenient for or supportive of present day people or factions, and that's just human. It's not to say that they're trying purposely to distort things, um, but it does it does make the task of historian that much more difficult. Yes, I was looking at the the list of gurus in the Dharamdas branch, 
And Dharam Das's uh, son took over as guru, I think it was like 1604, and Kabir supposedly passed on in 1520. Anyway, I was no- I was noticing this huge gap, as, as if Dharamdas had to be a guru for about a century <laughs> before his son could take over after his death. And it seemed like an awfully big gap between Kabir and Dharamdas's son, unless the math is wrong somewhere, or the dates. Yes, or, or unless Dharamdas wasn't, in fact, around at, at, during Kabir's own lifetime. Right. Um, which is Probably, which is also quite possible, um, because these teachings are really the Dharmadasi kind of twist on Kabir. Really, is a it, it sounds distinctly different than what we hear from the Kabir poetry, which is less mystic. It's certainly uh, devotional. Uh, you know, Kabir's emphasis on the inner Ram, the inner God, and, and taking God within. Uh, but there's no sense of the mysterious form of Kabir, and um, and the, uh, all these are later. So it wouldn't be surprise me that if Adonim Das uh, um, was significantly later than the lifetime of Kabir. Yes, the literature it's beautiful literature and teachings, but it does uh, remind me of Gnostic gospels. In other words, a couple of centuries after the time of Jesus, yeah. this Gnostic mysticism <clears throat> evolved, and mm-hmm. so you get a very esoteric mystical path. Uh, and it really ha- has to be later. It has to be based on something earlier. Yeah, yeah. And so that kind of dates it uh, well, a century or two. Of Christian teachings, also. I mean, the Gospel of of John, which is the Gnostic Gospel, is by far the latest. You know, the four Gospels to be written, probably around 120. So, you know, 100 years after Jesus' death, and clearly influenced by Greek ideas of Gnosticism and uh, Zoroastrian. Uh, images of kind of formus logos, you know, the word floating in space. The, the very beginning of the Gospel of, of John describes the birth of Jesus as, or the appearance of Jesus as being zapped. The logos, you know, comes out from space and takes flesh, uh, which is quite a different image than you find anywhere else in any of the other Gospels of the New Testament. Yeah, it's uh, a tradition a little later that's had time to develop right. and become eloquent. And that's very appealing to people. Uh, in the same way that the Anurag Sagar uh, is a summing up of the tradition, uh, in you know, with the four y- yugas of uh, Kabir incarnating and so on. So it's a it's kind of a summing up of a tradition that has been in development for a while. Yeah, uh, the Anurag Sagar is still venerated in. Uh, some branches of the Radhaswami tradition. Um, I think is it the Kabir Ashram that has no. It's some branch of the uh, of uh, Kabir Ashram. People have put out a version of the Anurads. The, maybe the Santbani group. Is, am I? Yes, Santbani Ashram. Uh, yes. To their credit, uh, published it in English. Right. Which was a, a very nice thing. And the Tarn Taran group also has an English translation and commentary these days, a newer translation. I see. I didn't know that. It's good. Yes, a three-volume set with commentary by Baba Kehar Singh. Right. 
And so that has become a second English uh, edition. And there may be others published by somebody in India, some other group possibly. Yeah, it's a beautiful book, and uh, but yeah, I do I do agree that it was written later uh, in the tradition, and apparently there's a whole series of other volumes uh, that we in the English reading world aren't so privy to, but uh, I believe it's called the Ocean of Kabir mm-hmm. or Kabir Sagar. Kabir Sagar, yeah. Yeah, and so this Anurag Sagar would be a volume in another in, in this whole literature, this whole world of Kabir literature. So, so it's a it's fascinating to try and connect uh, Tulsi Saab to an earlier Sant tradition, and therefore uh, kind of find out where your spiritual path came from. You know, it's it's right. that desire to uh, learn the family tree, if you will. Yeah, I, I mean, it, um, on the other hand, I know there are people who just don't care. I mean, as far as they're concerned, uh, the teachings of the master to which they are connected is the important thing, and I can understand that point of view also. So it takes a certain kind of, I don't know, intellectual curiosity to want to kind of sleuth down these these interesting connections. Right. Yeah, on the one hand, for some, it might not seem to lend itself to the devotional spirit and doing your meditation. Right. Uh, on the other hand, it's a way to get a handle on who's who in the world of gurus and to figure out... Uh, you know, Ekankar, Master Path, Radhaswami, right. kind of come to terms with where these groups came from and in, in a sense of trying to find uh, legitimate connections, bona fide connections. And um, so it can have a cloak and dagger kind of dimension to it. Right. But there is a family tree. And as you say, it's a, a really interesting uh, and significant that uh, within the last couple of weeks, uh, there have been uh, attempts to try to um, not bring the tree together, but to at least recognize the commonalities and to recognize the family relationships and respect those differences. And I, I thought that the respectful part was something that uh, uh, that impressed me quite a bit. Uh, the, uh, the sense that that uh, each of the movements would not compete or 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 disrespect uh, the others. Uh, but to say, well, well, we're all in the same family tradition, and there may be different masters and different lineages, but we all have some fundamental things in common, and we should respect each other. Yeah, that that's a very refreshing... <coughs> I, I was very pleased to read about this SpearCon conference and the declaration that the Dial Bog group made, kind of well, setting up basic criteria about who you know they might want to be in dialogue with, different branches of Radhaswami. So that was a very refreshing development, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, there there been you know for years there was a lawsuit going back and forth across the street between Swami Bog and Dial Bog over precisely the issue of access to the holy shrines and the question of whether Swami Bog. Owned the samad of the of uh, uh, Shivdayal Singh, and that uh, um, lawsuit, in a sense, was uh, uh, went on the on the Swami Bhag side that they you know it was their property. Uh, so, in a sense, this is an attempt to try to renew in a less legalistic way that uh, the notion of you know shared access. 
And it's funny, you know, you'd think it would make sense to Swamibog because they, they need the money to try to finish that huge edifice that if they, you know, were more open and accepting kind of the way Saudi Arabia is uh, open to all Muslims to come to the Hajj, uh, they could probably get financial support from a wide range of Sasangis that would make it possible to complete that project much more um, in a much more timely manner. But I, I, I won't speculate on what they're thinking or, or what they will do as a result of this, but I think now that it's kind of up to them to how they will respond to this um kind of attempt to be collaborative and and to be open. Right, and uh, I don't know if they all speak with one voice or if it's, uh, you know, several factions in the same location. Well, there are several factions, but they do have a council that, that meets, so there is like a governing council for for the property of, of Swami Bog, the town. Um, and so there is, you know, legally a, a committee that makes decisions regarding issues such as this so they they do have a mechanism for doing that yeah hopefully they'll be coming to terms with uh, some sort of uh, dialogue with other groups i i think of sans as belonging to all humanity and, and all mystics too jesus meister eckhart guru nanak you know swami g you know they're they're for the whole human race and not really copywritten or trademarked by anyone in particular. Yeah, the Swami Bog is in a little bit of a kind of sensitive spot, though, because since they have declared an interregnum, they're the only branch of the Radhaswami tradition that does not have a single recognized spiritual master, although, as you say, there are several people within Swami Bog who are recognized by by a small following. There is no single central recognized master so really the only thing they have is the past you know the only thing that they have that unites them all and gives them a position of prominence within the radhaswami tradition is their is their stewardship over the the original garden and the and the samad of swami shiv dial singh so i guess that explains their sense possessiveness over over that spot I was glad that uh, I believe it was Sant Das Maheshwari uh, that published all of those writings in English right? and uh, the Sarbachan poetry and Prem Patra Radhaswami, all that literature kind of on an unusual scale you know, 60 volumes or more Oh, he was quite a, he's a very interesting guy uh, of course he's, he's passed on now but uh, very enterprising, very, um, you know, you could see that he was a man with a mission and um, very smart and very, you could also see that he would be a person whom not everybody would admire. I mean, he came on kind of strong and uh, certainly had his strong opinions, but he was very bright and um, at times could be argumentative. But a good translator. But a good translator. Also, he had a collection of some of the relics from the original uh, master, fingernail clippings and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I assume they are now with his son. 
And there's one question that some have, I think, uh, in in some branches of the San tradition, about the the name Radha Swami. Uh, in the original Sarbachan poetry, uh, some have suggested that the name Radhaswami wasn't there, but another name, and then Saligram, when he came out with his version, added the name Radhaswami. Right. But I've heard other people say, no, there are handwritten uh, copies of each of those poems by Swamiji, and the name Radhaswami is in there, right in the original manuscript. Yeah, I've, I've simply, in my book, I simply reported on the two perspectives, and I have not made an attempt to try to make that determination, whether... Um, it was part of what part of the Sarbachan prose and poetry are original and what was interpolation from Rice Hologram or uh, that's the scholarly task that uh, somebody might want to pick up if you want to do your PhD dissertation on that topic I'd be proud to sponsor it uh, but but I simply reported that there is you know this kind of discussion about whether in fact it was a part of the original teachings and, and I don't know yeah it's one of those things where there are it's a it's a word with overwhelming uh, use usage in the Sarbachan poetry and does turn up in the prose uh, a little bit as well and so there are uh, it, it would be an awful lot of interpolations if uh-huh. if it was an interpolation right yes my assumption is that the phrase Radhaswami would be not uncommon uh, meaning, you know, literally the Lord of Radha or, you know, another name for Krishna, uh, and particularly in that region, which is Krishna's homeland. Um, you know, Vrindavan, Krishna's pilgrimage center, is right next to the town of Mathura, which is right close to Agra. So um, I, it would not be surprising to find that term used for a name of, a name for God in other contexts. Uh, what is unusual, of course, is for it to be used in this way, not for an iconic god, not for specifically you know, Krishna or an avatar of Ram, but on a kind of god consciousness. That is, of course, striking, and how that connection is, is made, um, I don't know. That's, I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's a very bhakti or devotional type practice of repeating the name Radhaswami, but yes, uh, referring to Narguna or formless, right. formless God. Right, because it is very much a part of Sagana pra- practice, which is the form, you know, devotion to a form God as opposed to Nirguna, which is, you know, devotion to a God you can't see, can't know, or only experience within. But if you go to Vrindavan, the Krishna pilgrimage center, there's, you know, their common expression when you go to the town is, uh, Rada, Rada, hey, Rada. Uh, so they, in fact, it's Rada that is the female form of Krishna, or the consort of Krishna, that is kind of the main term that's used in the town, even though it's Krishna's town, which is really interesting. And that says two things. One is that to be able to be a devotee of Krishna, you have to be like Rada, uh, his uh, consort. But it, then it also means that the purest expression of that relationship is love. Is the love that that uh, that lovers have, and the love that devotees have for their masters. So right, bhakti, that, lover and the beloved. Lover and the beloved. So that certainly is the dominant, the dominant 
religious motif of that region. And it's, of course, interesting that this area of Radha, of Agra, is very close to that region. Yeah, that certainly, that context certainly makes sense. And usually you can see down the middle, you know, there are different different approaches, like there's the, the Panch Nam, the five-name mm-hmm. tradition, and probably earlier that was Swamiji's approach, uh, and then later you have uh, the innovation of Radhaswami Nam, and s- some favor the former, others favor the latter, both claim historic legitimacy, and both are right. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, that's uh, actually... My value of doing this being an outsider and, and this scholar is that I, I don't have to decide which is right. <laughs> I can right. simply I can simply report on the diversity and uh, and how uh, how it's admired and appreciated and respected within all branches of the tradition. Yeah, and and academic books, big picture, multi tradition books are so uh, valuable. Uh, of course, uh, David Lane's writings, uh, your book, Radhaswami, Reality, uh, The Sants, uh, Agen Prasad Mathur's book on the Radhaswami faith, a historic study. Uh, those big-picture, multi-lineage views are, I think, very helpful. Thanks. The other two scholars I know, of course, who work have worked on Radhaswami tradition is Dan Gold, uh, the Lord is Guru, and his focus is actually on the Radhaswami Master in Gwalior, which is not one of the better-known branches of the tradition, um, but it's the one to which uh, he was introduced and had access, and, and then uh, talks about the Radhaswami tradition more generally from that point of view. Dan was also at the SpearCon conference, by the way. He said oh. at Cornell. Um, and then uh, uh, Lawrence Babb, who's at Amherst, um, has one section on Radhaswami in his book. Oh, shoot. What's the name of the book? Uh, think about a second. Probably have it in my bibliography, my own book. Um, and then um, there's a psychologist um, who's written on... Um, Uh, Lawrence Babb's book is Redemptive Encounters, three, yes. three styles in the Hindu tradition. And then there's a um, psychologist who's in India. Oh, shoot. Who has a section on the reverence to the guru, but Sudhir Kakar. And Kakar's a, a, a terrific guy. He is himself a Punjabi and knows the Bias area uh, fairly well. Um, but he is a psychologist, so he talks about, you know, the infantilizing role that uh, the devotee uh, that takes in relationship to the master. And if you're a devotee, you might be put off by some of this kind of psychologizing of the relationship. But it is, but it is interesting. And, and the, his is in, I think, in Shamans, Mystics, and Doctors is his book. Oh yes. And uh, the path of the saints is the chapter in that book. And those are the main. You've talked about David Lane's work. There is David Lorenzen who's uh, researched uh, Kabir yeah. Panth. Mm-hmm. Well, there's several people who've worked. He's done specifically in the Kabir Punt, and then on Kabir's writings, uh, people like Linda Hess and 
Charlotte Vaudeville? Yes, Charlotte Vaudeville is one of the early um, writers on Kabir. I'm trying to think who else. But uh, there's reference to this in the, the Song of the Saints of India book that Jack Holly and I edited. And that's published by SUNY Press, New York? Uh, our book is Oxford. Oxford, good to know, because I know there's another one um, published by SUNY Press. Uh, kind of, that's the Nirmal Das songs of Kabir and the Adi Granth, I guess right. I'm thinking of. Right. Mm-hmm. But yours is, what's the title again? Songs of the Saints of India. Songs of the Saints of India. And it's meant to be a kind of general introduction uh, for everybody, layman. It's not. It's used a lot in introductory textbooks in, in Hinduism. I'm really pleased to say that it still has a life. You know, when you do a book years ago, you wonder how long it's going to last. But it's just come out in a new edition in India. Uh, as well as a new edition in the United States, uh, both by Oxford University Press, Songs of the Saints of India. And the saints are uh, Kabir, whom, about whom we've just been speaking, uh, but also Tulsi Das, uh, Guru Nanak, the founder of the Sikh tradition, um, uh, Asur, uh, Sur, you know, the blind uh, saint. and oh, Sur Das. Sur Das, and uh, Mirabai, the... The woman. So the interesting thing about the Sant tradition is that, uh, with the exception of Tulsi Das, uh, none of them are Brahmins. Uh, they're, and in fact, in Kabir's case, he's really hostile to Brahmins. <laughs> you know, he sees them as very pretentious people. Uh, but there are also people who, you know, handicapped people like Sur, and particularly people who are blind. You know, that's an controversy because darshan as you know is such an important thing in the hindu tradition in general it's important in radhaswami to actually take in the master through the eyes right uh and if you're blind you know how can you do that uh, but sur who is blind writes eloquently about seeing the god within uh and that the true sight is not you know, the one that's the physical with the eyes is the true sight is the internal dis- discovery and that's one of the things that makes him so powerful. And, of course, Mira is a woman in, in India in general. Uh, women are not thought to be as accomplished uh, in spiritual matters as men, but, of course, she shows them uh, that the power of Mira is that she's able to um, to show that her, her gender is uh, not uh, not only is a handicapped, it's a, it's a, a way of entering into even a higher form of devotion with God. Oh, yes. Anyone could publish a book of uh, female saints of India, uh, Dayabai, Mirabai. Yeah. Uh, there are several, several. Uh, I think I researched that and came up came up with like 15 female saints. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's many more than that. Yes, and they continue. I mean, there's um, uh, many lineages that have uh, female masters. That hasn't been the case within the Radhaswami tradition, interestingly. But it's not I, lately. Yeah. Uh, well, that's an interesting point. I mean, some people say that Mataji, the the wife of the of the Shiv Dal Singh, had the power to initiate. Right. Um, and the later on, uh, Babuji Maharaja's sister. Mm-hmm, that's right. Um, but in both of those cases, it was not clear whether everybody accepted that, and it was certainly it was not a dominant um, uh, role within the tradition. And in a patriarchal society, they would just initiate females, not right. men, right? right? 
Yes, and I, but I don't see any reason why, I don't see anything in the, the logic of the Radhaswami tradition that would prohibit uh, a, the understanding that the, that the, um, the line of spiritual masterhood went to a woman. As you, as you know, that you, the determination of that really is from the followers where they see, whether they see the line continuing in, in a particular person uh, or not. And that's, of course, why there's often a division after, after the death of a previous master. Yeah, and there are two uh, females I know that are serving the, in the capacity of Satguru. Um, Yogani Mataji, uh, assuming she's still alive, she would be getting up there in years by now, in the Baba Fakir Chand oh, that's right. tradition. Uh-huh. That's if she's still out there uh, in northern India somewhere. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good point, because I, I knew Fakir Chand, but uh, hadn't really followed up uh, you know, since his, his passing. Yeah, and then there is a, a disciple of uh, Sant Kripal Singh that has an ashram in Delhi and is even on good terms with um, science of spirituality and, uh, uh, and other you know, branches of, uh-huh. of Kripal Singh, Ruhani Satsang. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, it, so it, it's certainly possible, and, and it has happened. Yes, indeed. Well, this has been great speaking with you today about the Sant tradition and uh, Radhaswami and this uh, very positive development uh, with the SpearCon, the conference at Dial Bog. And uh, once again, who were the the groups uh, attending the Dial Bog conference? Uh, was the Baba Fakir Chand group included in that? No. Uh, there, I don't know whether they were invited and couldn't make it. Um, uh, I, have, I don't know the invitation list. It was the uh, um, from People Monday and from uh, Taran Taran and oh gee the other group and the new group in uh, in Punjab. Um, I'm curious as to who that might be. Well, I have it in my notes someplace. Um, As you mentioned, it's a newer group. Hang on, Do, uh, hold for just a second. Let me check my files. Okay. Well, I don't see my files immediately, um, but my it's one of these things where as soon as we stop talking, it'll come to me, and I'll say, oh, darn, I should have, I should have mentioned the name. My apologies. Ah, the name of the female guru in Delhi that was a disciple of uh, Sawan Singh and Kripal Singh is Sant Chander Prabhaji. Uh-huh. If I'm pronouncing that somewhat correctly. Uh-huh. And Yogani Madhaji was the the female successor or w- one of the uh, initiating gurus after Baba Fakir Chand and the right. the, the Hashirepur Radhaswami Satsang. Mm-hmm. Right. So the uh, SpearCon conference, uh, Dialbog, um, uh, someone from Radhaswami Bayas group was... They were invited, told, or they. I'm told that that uh, messages of uh, of su- support and conviviality came from both Tripal Ashram and from Bias. Yeah. Yeah, and the Taran Taran group. They were represented. They were there. Oh, that is such a refreshing development, Ecumenical, ecumenism, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was nice for me to see the respect that was given uh, because the um, the. The, 
master whose name I can't think of uh, from Punjab. Uh, it came. This is the morning uh, after the conference, and actually the morning before the meeting of the of the different movements. Um, every morning uh, at Dialbog, they have this practice as they as they do of uh, at Bias and other places of having group seva. Uh, you know, service working out in the out in the fields, or working out in the case of Bias, trying to uh, build a dam or to extend the uh, the land along the, the riverbank. But in the case of Diabog, it's often they have these huge agricultural plots. It's working out in the fields, so they all went out in the fields to work in, on uh, digging up peanuts, uh, groundnuts, you know, from the the fields. And there were the masters of these traditions on their knees digging away at the at the peanuts. They weren't just sitting there; they were actually uh, a part of the a part of the community at work. Ah. And, and it was very uh, you know touching to see this kind of uh, equality and everybody working together. And of course, there'd be great reverence of their followers uh, to them, but they they were all sharing together in that common experience. And, uh, and it was very nice to see. Ah, that would make a great DVD. <laughs> it would. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, well, was there pleasure to talk with you? Yeah. Was there was there plans announced at the first conference uh, of having another one or making it an annual event or uh, you know a future follow up to uh, create a new council of some sort? I don't know. Uh, I of course wasn't at the meeting. Um, uh, I think that really depends on you know the organizers and uh, the response and whether they feel there's a need for it. Uh, but there was certainly uh, an air an air of good feeling and uh, uh, you know conviviality. And I wouldn't be surprised if there be other occasions like this again in the future. Right. It sounds like that. So that's always a good thing. Ahimsa, a positive uh, relations between different sects, is always a great thing. Absolutely. Great. If people want to email you, how uh, how is it best to, to do that? Uh, Jurgens, the first half of my last name, Jurgens at global.ucsb.edu. Uh, we have a new global studies program at the University of California, Santa Barbara, of which I'm a part, and the director of the Orfla Center for Global and International Studies. Uh, as you probably know, my interest in religion and society has taken uh, a different twist in the last several decades with the rise of religious violence and religious nationalism around the world, and that's consuming a lot of my attention. So uh, it, it's something of a relief to be able to talk about the more peaceful and spiritual aspects of religion and return to my work on Radhaswami. Uh, yeah, the world needs more meditators and uh, uh, more Sufis, too. Exactly. <laughs> Sufis, Quakers, and meditators. Yep. Instead of uh, fundamentalist... Uh, That's the kind uh, of religion I like, and uh, I think the world needs more of... Less jihad and, and, and more love and uh, meditation. Absolutely. D indeed. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Good talking with you. Oh, Radha Swami. Radha Swami. Professor Mark Jurgensmeyer, Director of the Orfala Center for Global and International Studies, Professor of Sociology and Affiliate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, 
author of the book Radhaswami Reality. Other publications include Songs of the Saints of India, Mystic Poetry of Kabir, Guru Nanak, Rabidas, Mirabai, Sirdas, and Tulsi Das. If you Google his name, you'll find that he has a web page, a Wikipedia entry. You'll see links to various publications at Amazon and elsewhere, and more about Professor Mark Jurgensmeyer and his various activities, his history, and projects over the years. By the way, the guru that we could not remember during the latter part of the interview was Sant Kanwar Singh of the Radhaswami Satsang, Dinod. My name is James Bean. This Sant Mat Satsang podcast, this broadcast of Spiritual Awakening Radio, is a satsang service heard every week at this time. Please like and subscribe to this channel. If you have suggestions for future shows or would like to ask a question or get in touch with me, send me an email at this address, james at spiritualawakeningradio.com. james at spiritualawakeningradio.com. Visit my website, spiritualawakeningradio.com. From there you'll see many links, tabs, and buttons that will take you to various sites for podcasts on demand, daily spiritual quotes, blogs, newsletters, articles, all to be found at the website, spiritualawakeningradio.com. Thanks for joining me. Let's do this again a few days from now. Tune in for the next Sant Mat Satsang podcast coming soon. <laughs>